Hebrews chapter 1 is, in many ways, an entire Christology wrapped up into one chapter. You can actually even go further than that and say that Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 is, in many ways, the greatest explanation of the importance of Christ, who he is and what he has done. You would be hard-pressed to find any other place in the scripture where so much is revealed about the Lord and his work in just a few uh, verses. Verses that contain phrases that deal with Christ's deity, as well as verses that contain truth about him and his humanity and what he did once he took human flesh. And so I've, I've actually preached on this passage before, but I, every time I preach on this text, I always say that this section of the scriptures really needs to be a series. You really need to break down each one of these phrases that we find in the early sections of this, of this book and expound on it a little bit more and, and, and widen it out. And so that's what I want to do uh, at, at, over the next several Lord's Day mornings is come to this section of the scriptures and take these phrases that we find in these verses and expound them a little bit more. Sometimes it will be going to other scriptures to show uh, that there's more support for what Paul is, is mentioning here. Sometimes it will be re- referring to church history and how others have misread these doctrines and have er- ended up in heresy. Uh, some of the cults that we know of in our day, uh, you can trace the, the beginnings of their errors uh, in, in, in these verses, a misunderstanding or a misreading, a misinterpretation of these verses. Any, any error that the church has had to deal with in ancient days as well as in our own day, uh, most of them actually were already found in the church by the time you get to 325, maybe even a little bit later than that, but not much later. Most of, most of the heresies that you can arrive at concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ were already dealt with and shown to be heretical in the first several hundred years in church history. What we find today, people may have a different name than the groups back then, but the errors and the doctrines that they form based on those errors haven't changed. And so the devil always, sometimes he, he puts a different face on the error or the group, but the attacks against Christ's person and his work continue, and they will continue until Christ returns. The devil, just remember this, oftentimes we, we have strange views of the devil. Uh, the charismatic movement portrays the devil as someone that you can just turn and have a little conversation with him. Man, I command you to do this and I command you to... I think you'll find that the devil is a much more formidable foe than the charismatics portray him as. So much so that even the archangel didn't even bring against the devil a railing accusation. You can read that in the book of Jude uh, that he, he said to the devil, the Lord rebuke you. And so there's a lot about the devil we don't understand, but the primary objective of Satan is always to attack the word of God. Primary objective. You may say, well, what about Christ himself? Wasn't that his primary objective? That he, he wanted to destroy Christ? He wanted, that's, it's, it's, it's a, it was an objective. But the scripture itself tells us that the main attack and the main objective of the devil is to go after the word of God. And we'll see this as we go through uh, our, our message today, that the foundation for our theology, the foundation for our understanding of who Christ is and what he has done always must come from the word of God. I say the devil's main attack is the word because 
there's a, there's a law or there's a rule of interpretation in the scriptures known as the, the, the rule of first mention or the law of first mention. And you'll find that this, this law, when applied, uh, is, is pretty much true concerning uh, how you would interpret different things in the Word of God. The law or, the, or the, the rule is that when something is mentioned for the first time in the Scriptures, very often the context in which you find that thing or image or, or, or whatever it is, the, the context in which you find it mentioned the first time has, a, has an effect or a bearing upon how you should read it throughout the rest of the Scriptures. For instance... Uh, the law first mentioned would tell us that the first time you find thorns mentioned in the scriptures is from Adam and Eve's fall into sin. The curse upon man. When man fell into sin, the Lord said, Cursed is the ground for thy sake. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth now. In the sweat of your brow you're going to, to till the earth. Right. So the first mention of thorns is found in relation to the curse. It doesn't surprise us then that when Christ was being made sin for us and taking the, the guilt of our sin upon himself as our redeemer, they plaited a crown of thorns and placed it upon his head in a very symbolic way. They didn't even realize what they were doing, but yet fulfilling that law of first mention that Christ has become a curse for us. And so you'll find different different ways of, or different, different ideas running through the scriptures that all flow from the first mention. And I say the devil's main attack is the word of God because both times in the scripture, in the Old and the New Testament, the first mention of the devil is him going after the word of God. Satan appears in the garden. Right after man has been created, man is created perfect and upright, placed in a perfect environment in the presence of God. And the devil comes, and what is the first thing out of the devil's mouth? Yea, hath God said. Has God really said that? That the moment you eat this fruit, you're going to die? No, what God meant is that he doesn't want you to eat it because he knows in the day you eat it, you're going to be like him. Right? But the first words out of his mouth, he goes after the word of God. You come to the New Testament, and the first mention of the devil is his temptation of Christ in the wilderness. Uh, many of you may not understand the connection between the temptation in the wilderness and what took place in the ministry of Christ just before that. Christ was baptized of John the Baptist at the end of Matthew chapter 3, where a voice from heaven was heard saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then it says, Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness and he was tempted of the devil. The devil comes and the first thing he says is, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones be turned into bread. I say the first mention in the Old Testament and the New Testament shows the primary objective of the devil. He, 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 he attempts many different things to hinder the work of Christ. But if the scripture teaches us anything, we learn that the primary objective of the devil is to attack the word of God. And when we come to these great doctrines, we come to the great doctrines of the faith, one thing I want you to understand is that to understand the truth concerning the person and work of Christ, it, it requires faith. Faith in the scriptures, that the scripture is the word of God. We're told in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Faith is a gift. I tell people when I evangelize on the streets, uh, I always made the mistake of, when I would talk to people, sinners in their unbelief want to talk about anything but their sin. They want to try to cast doubt upon Christ. They want to try to cast doubt upon God. They want to try to cast doubt on creation. They'll try to, 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 to bring, in, in, bring you into a, a conversation concerning a million different things. But 
And I used to fall into that. I would sit there on the streets and talk to people for hours and I'd walk away thinking I really didn't accomplish anything because all I did was try to, to rationalize with people. And the older I get, the more I realize it's very simple. I'm commanded to do one thing and that's to preach the word of God. I don't know who the Lord will give the gift of faith to. It's not my responsibility every time I preach to start by saying, here's the arguments that I raise to prove God exists. Here's the arguments that I raise to prove that that man fell into sin and, and, and to try to rationalize with people and to give them arguments. My responsibility before the Lord is to preach the word. When Paul preached the gospel on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 16, he preached the word. And when he was finished... It tells us some mocked. Others said, we'll hear you again on this matter. And some believed. The preaching of the word has that effect. It doesn't matter how eloquent the preacher is. It doesn't matter how gifted he may be or how much he prepared his message. What's required in someone believing, just like on Mars Hill, is that the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and brings it home to the heart, quickens the soul, and gives the soul the gift of faith. So that when the Word's preached, the Lord is the one that does the work. The Lord is the one that does the work. Now I say all that to say, where people err concerning the person and the work of Christ is when they depart from what the scripture says. And they come up with their own ideas and they come up with their own thoughts concerning who Jesus was and what he came to do. And so over the next couple weeks, I want to simply go through these phrases in this early section of Hebrews chapter one. And I want to expound them, but my main objective is to simply have you hear what the word of God says about Christ. Because like I said, you're not going to find a more uh, a, a, a synopsis of the personal work of Christ in a greater way than, than in this chapter. And so I want to do that this morning. And, and I'm hoping and praying that the Lord simply by having me go over these phrases over the next several weeks, that he'll take his word and write it upon your hearts. I, I had a family that I became very close with in Greenville many years ago. Uh, In my second year of seminary, I uh, was coming back to Greenville. I didn't know where I was going to stay. I had to play at a little apartment my first year, but that didn't work out. And when I came back to Greenville, I didn't know where I was going to stay. A friend of mine wanted to have have me over for for dinner with his parents. And at that dinner, his parents said, we want to put you up for the next three years, not charge you any rent, not charge you anything for food, anything. We just, we feel like that's what we want to do. And so this family, I've been like a son to them. They've been like, like parents to me. Just the other day, like two weeks ago, uh, this man, he's probably close to 80 now. I don't know his exact age. He may even be in his 80s. Was, uh, I was given an invitation to come to a special ceremony uh, to... Um, he was being given what was referred to as a quilt of honor in the, in the America. And I had never known this group existed. But quilts of honor are made by quilt makers that are part of this group, a volunteer group of people. They make quilts that are patriotic. They all have the, somewhat the same design, but every one of them is different. And they give these quilts to veterans. They have a big ceremony. Maybe they'll have six or eight veterans up there. Each one of them gives their own little account of how they served, and, and then this honor is bestowed upon them. They come and they wrap this, this quilt around the, the veterans. And so I was invited to go to this, this evening where the, the man that put me up was being honored. He fought in Vietnam uh, and uh, gave a little explanation of what he did when he was over there. But afterward, I was, I was talking to my, my buddy, and I said, how did your, how did your mom and dad get saved? How did they come to Christ? He said, you never heard that? I said, no. I I said, I spent those years in the house and I never knew. He said, it's the most amazing testimony you're ever going to hear. It's the most amazing testimony. Um, 
he was getting ready to go in the military. He got married, and he was only married, I think they said, for six months before he left. And his wife ended up having their first child while he was serving in the military. When he got back from Vietnam, um, he's unsaved, a drinker. Scott said in his early days, he had the foulest mouth you ever wanted to hear. And they went from place to place. To place. He couldn't hold a job all throughout the country. And someone that he went in, into the military with invited him to go to New York to take a job in upstate New York. And so they went there, and they could not find a place to live. As amazing as it sounds, no rental units. The only rental unit they could find was a rental unit that this old couple had that was right next to their place. And so they moved in, and these people were Christians. And so for two years, they lived there, and this couple would witness to them or just, just talk to them uh, about the Lord and what the Lord did in their life. But this one evening, they invited them for dinner, and when Ted and Ibby were sitting there at the table, the, the, the wife, the older woman, had a copy of the scriptures and said, Ted, I just want you to read this verse. And she pointed uh, to a verse in Romans chapter 10 that, that talked about coming to Christ. And he read the verse and read it to himself, didn't even read it out loud. So she took the Bible, without making a comment, slid it over to Ibby. Same verse, whosoever, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I just want you to read it. And so she read it to herself, closed the Bible, they had dinner. Scott said that night his dad went home completely shattered over his life and where he was. There was no explanation. There was no expounding of great doctrinal truth. One passage from one chapter in the scriptures, upon which she made no comment, shattered him. And he asked the Lord to save him that night from reading one verse. In the morning, he got up, went to breakfast, sat down at the table. His wife came out and he said, Honey, I've got something I have to tell you. The Lord saved me last night. And she looked at him and said, I called on the Lord for salvation as well. Unbeknownst to him. Both of them, in the same evening, independent of each other, reading the same verse, whosoever, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, came to Christ. That's what I'm talking about. When the Lord takes a dealing with a sinner... It's the power of the word of God. When the word of God comes with power, the Lord gives the gift of faith. It doesn't require eloquence. It doesn't require someone to have gifts in delivery and handling the word. And oftentimes the Lord gifts men that he's using in those ways. But all too often I've heard amazing cases of one verse without comment, striking and smiting the heart and the Lord giving the gift of faith through that one verse. And so that's, that's what I want to do over the next couple weeks. Deal with these phrases. And this is kind of a, a way of introduction. I have, I have next week to preach and then I'm probably going to continue this into uh, January and February. I'm, I'm here for three Sundays in January, three Sundays in February. And so I, I, I've just been more impressed the older that I get. I, I've been part of the free church now for 30 years, over 30 years. We came into the Free Presbyterian Church in 1991. And I told the folks in, in Orlando last week that if you're part of any group and you've been part of that group for 30 years and you haven't learned things about that group, then there's something wrong with you, right? You, you have to you have to understand and grow in wisdom as you walk through this life. You know, Dr. McClelland always used to tell us for sermon illustrations, walk through this life with your eyes open. Walk through life with your eyes. There's sermon illustrations all over the place. Stories. And he was, he's classic at doing that. Taking something that is simple in life uh, and, and making it an illustration in, in, in his messages. Well, if you've been part of a group for 30 years and you haven't learned and grown in your understanding and wisdom as to the pros and cons 
of that group, well, then you're just not, you're just not observing, right? And the older that I get, the more I'm convinced what's needed is to get down before the Lord in earnest, spirit-led prayer and pray that the Lord would take the word and use it, that the word of God would have free course and be glorified. It doesn't matter how well I do. It doesn't matter how well any of our preachers do when they're handling the scriptures. What matters is that a man gets behind the pulpit who's filled with the power of the Holy Ghost and he gives the people the word of God. Some will mock. Others will say, we'll come again, we'll hear you again. But by the grace of God, some will believe. And they will believe because the the Spirit of God has taken the word of God and done a work that I can't do. How can I bring life to something that the scripture says is dead in trespasses and sins. How can I, who am an earthen vessel, who the scripture clearly tells still has a vile body, that Paul, in referring to his own body, says, a wretched man that I am. How can a wretched man like Paul do such a great work in his day that the the skeptics and the haters of the gospel said that they've turned the world upside down. It's because Paul was filled with the power of the Holy Ghost and he preached the word. And if we expect to see anything done in our denomination in the coming days, it's not that we train our men to be more eloquent. It's not that we train our men in the art of preaching. All of those things may be may be good disciplines to pursue when you're called to the ministry. And, and maybe you would even say uh, it's necessary. But I've also, I've also learned that the Lord gifts the man. The Lord, when he raises up a man, he gifts him to be able to handle the word. The primary burden that we should have in our denomination is to get on our faces before the Lord and plead with God, that he will take his word and let it run and that he will accompany the preaching of the word with the power of the Spirit of God. That's what we need to see. So much so that, that even those that are being used will be able to just stand back and say, the Lord has taken this well beyond anything that, that we could say or do. That was Luther's testimony in his day. I don't agree with everything that Luther did. I don't agree with everything that Luther said. But in his own unique way, he would often tell how after the Reformation had started, the way it ran and the way the Lord was blessing the preaching of the word, his, his, the way he explained it was he and Melanchthon would often sit and have a pint together talking about all the things that the Lord was doing. And we look at Luther and think that the Lord, if it wasn't for Luther, these things would not have happened. Luther was merely the spark. The Lord took the word and it ran and it had free course. And the power of the word is what accomplished the Reformation. There were were social aspects. There were things politically. It was the right time. Everything took place just according to to the timing of God. But the power that was connected to the Reformation was in the word. It wasn't in the men. And that was Luther's own testimony. So, Of all the doctrines and the theology that we consider dear to us in our Reformed doctrine, and I am Reformed, I'm as as Reformed as you can be in my theology. But I understand that primary, the primary thing we need to see is Holy Ghost preaching and the Lord taking the word and driving it home. And so, over the next several weeks, I want to consider the theme, why is Christ so special? Here's someone that came into the world 2,000 years ago, and we still preach him. We still preach him. Some, Some apostates and some heretics have marred how he's viewed. Some who profess faith in Christ have marred 
by their own actions and their own sinfulness and, and corruption have marred how people view him. Some say they want nothing to do with Christ because those that profess to know him are only hypocrites. They, they, they don't do what they say, to which I often say, I don't know if anyone of you know a mathematician or a math teacher, but two plus two equals four, regardless of what I think of the math teacher, right? He may be the most vile, ungodly man, but it still doesn't change the fact that two plus two equals four. And you may know someone who professes the name of Christ, and you may say he's a hypocrite. Well, that still does not change the fact of what the scripture says concerning Christ. It's only another way that those that are ungodly shirk off their responsibility to answer the charge of the gospel as it's found in the scripture. So regardless of how hypocrites have corrupted the name of Christ and regardless of how, how the, the heretics and the unorthodox have marred the image of Christ, we come to the scriptures this morning and begin over the next several weeks to deal with why is Christ so special? Why is Christ so special? So who is Christ and what has Christ done? I want to start by considering that first point, and there's many different things we're going to say under this. We may not even get to that second part of the message for several weeks. But who is Christ? Who is Christ? And we're just going to pretty much go through these notes in the amount of time we have, and we'll just pick up where we leave off. And over the next several Sunday mornings, I want to give you what the scripture says concerning Christ, who he is and what he's done, and leave that with you. We pray that the Lord will take his word and either convict you of sin, righteousness, or judgment, or give you such a burden as a believer that you realize what we need to see is the word of God, accompanied by the power of the spirit of God, to do the great work in our day. Who is Christ? First of all, our passage tells us that he's the son of God. He's the son of God. God who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets. Let me just stop. The, 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 the use of the language here maybe is a little hard for some to understand what Paul's saying. In essence, all he said is God who at different times and in different ways spoke in times past, to the fathers by the prophets, right? Different times, different ways, but God always spoke to the fathers by the prophets. He goes on to say, has in these last days spoken unto us by his son. Christ is the son of God. What does that mean? What does it mean when we say Christ is the son of God? Well, what we mean is that it's, his nature is the same as the fathers. The father who is viewed as God, Christ is said to have the same nature, the same nature, not the same person, two different people, but the same nature, another person in the Godhead. But, but in every aspect, the divine nature in Christ is the same in substance as the father. Question six of the shorter catechism says, how many persons are there in the Godhead. The answer is there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. The same in substance regarding the nature of, of who Christ is. Same in substance as the Father. Now, when we talk about nature, really all we're, we're talking about is the aspects of, a, of an individual that define who they are, in essence. Um, when I talk about human nature, by the outward appearance, you would say, well, a, a human being has two arms, two legs, rationalizes, the rest of creation doesn't, doesn't have the intellect that man has. And, and you can go down the list of all the things that we just take for granted but in essence are part of having a human nature. Birds have a different nature. Birds can fly. Every human being that's attempted to fly has either gotten injured or has died. Why is that? Because the Lord did not create man in his nature to fly. 
Okay? There are certain things that are true about nature regarding different, different parts of creation. And, and when we talk about human nature, at least in the tangible things, it's those things that when we look at someone, the, the overriding uh, things that we can see help us to define what class that they're in. Now, I say all that to say that in almost every aspect, a human nature that has been affected by sin... Every one of those things that I just mentioned, you can show me a human being that doesn't have those things. Two arms, two legs. I mean, Da Vinci, when he was drawing his picture of man and, and what man is like, he drew that picture with his arms and his legs moving and out, out extended. But I can show you today that there are people that don't have two arms, that there are people that, that don't have two legs. I can show you people that don't have intellectual powers. They're alive. They're on the earth. So there's, there's aspects to the human nature that uh, are deficient. That's because of sin. Actually, when you boil down human nature, there's only one thing that is true of every person. So you may even say that it's the chief aspect of human nature, and that's sin. You may not have two arms. You may not have two legs but you're a sinner today. Adam's sin in the garden affected human nature. Human nature fell that day. So of all the things that we can say that we see about people that define them as a person, right? A human nature. The one overriding thing that we we not only shouldn't forget, but we should put to the top of the list, human nature is sinful. And that applies to everybody. People can't see. Right? We talk about that's part of human nature. You can see. Some people can't see. Some people can't walk. But everyone is guilty before the Lord. The scripture says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But in dealing with the divine nature, all of the things that can be said concerning God are true of the Son. This is denied by many of the cults. The first uh, way in which this appeared in the early church uh, was a a heretic called Arius who introduced to the church uh, his view of the Lord Jesus Christ that he was not of the same substance as the Father. And that was, we'll see in a moment, that was refuted by several church councils, but more importantly, it's been refuted from the word of God. The Arians were shown to be heretics. That doctrine that they hold today, that they held back then, today is actually held by another group that we know. We don't know them as Arians, we know them as Jehovah's Witnesses or Russellites. Dr. Cairns in his Dictionary of Theological Terms did not name them Jehovah's Witnesses because they're anything but Jehovah's Witnesses. They're Russellites. Charles Russell was their their originator of their movement. But Arianism, the error, and, and we'll get to Jehovah's Witnesses in a little bit, Arianism was named after Arius, this is taken from Dr. Cairns' dictionary, this heresy maintained that God the Father alone is eternal and made his son to be the first creature he created out of nothing. Okay, you see the difference? Some Arians went on to teach that the Holy Spirit was then the first and great creature produced by the Son. The Council of Nicaea met in 325 AD or AD 325 to deal with the subject and it firmly rejected Arianism. It held that the Son was of the same substance with the Father. Homoousian, that's the Greek, right? Homoousian. Not merely of similar substance. He's the exact same substance as the Father, not something that is similar in substance. And that's what the Arians taught. There's a difference between one little word, homoousian. That's the difference between heresy and truth. The scripture says that he's of the same substance. He is Jehovah, not a creation of Jehovah. So the council met. They determined that he is of the same substance with the Father, pronouncing its scriptural faith that the Son was, and this is from the Nicene Creed, Son of God, light of light, very God of very God, being of one substance with the Father. 
The Nicene decision later, because there was another flare-up of this heresy, it had to be dealt with again later at the Council of, of Constantinople in, in 383, was once again refuted as heresy. So that's, that is the, the doctrine that the Scripture sets forth. It, Christ's substance in his nature is not something similar to the Lord. It's the exact same substance. He is just as much Jehovah God as the Father. Now the scripture in many different places sets this forth. Sometimes you have to compare the Old Testament with the New Testament. But I want to I take some time with you to go through these passages. And I want you to remember these. You don't need to remember them all. But remember the, the ones that come to your mind the easiest. Because you will have Russellites come to your door. They will. They don't come to my door anymore because Dr. Allison years ago told me how to deal with them. He, he said, when they come to your door, just tell them that we serve a different Jesus. The Jesus that I serve is Jehovah. And you take them to some of these passages of Scripture and they will not come to your door anymore because they don't know how to answer them. The Scripture is clear. Christ is not of similar substance with the Father. Our Savior who came into this world to take human flesh and to, to sacrifice himself, to appease the wrath of God so that we can be reconciled to God, is said to be Jehovah. Not the creation of Jehovah, Jehovah himself. Turn with me, if you would, to the, to the book of Psalms, Psalm 45. Psalm 45. And say so there's, there's five or six different references here from the Old Testament that you'll be able to, you, you can actually even use their own Bible. They have a little different translation than the King James. They, they use what's referred to as the New World Translation of the Scriptures. It's in essence the King James Version, but they make changes to it. They just alter it in places for reasons that we're, we'll, we'll consider here in a moment. But in Psalm 45, verse 6, the Scripture is setting forth what is eventually applied to Christ. In Psalm 45, verse 6, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. You ask someone, who is this referring to? They would say, Jehovah. David's talking directly to God. And he's saying, thy throne is forever and ever. The interesting thing is in the very chapter that we're considering in the book of Hebrews, in that same chapter, chapter 1, verse 8, the Lord is said by the Apostle Paul, he says, But unto the Son, he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. And he goes on, In the middle of this great section concerning Christ, he says that the, the Father said this to the Son. And the Father refers to the Son as God. And so there's a, a great passage to remember. An Old Testament verse quoted in the New Testament and applied to Christ. There's two other passages moving on. Uh, Numbers chapter 14, verse 20 through 24. You don't need to turn to these. I'll only give you the verses so you can write them down. And then Psalm 95, verses 6 through 11. Both of those sections of the Old Testament talk about the Jews hardening their hearts and resisting Jehovah in the wilderness. And because of that, the Lord then said they won't enter in to inherit the blessings and the, the, the inheritance that he promised to his people. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 9, the Apostle Paul, you can turn to that passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 9. The Apostle Paul says something very interesting, and who he applies it to is even more interesting. Paul is quoting that, what happened in, in, in them rejecting the Lord. And verse 9 says, Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Now, if you go back, to, especially to the Numbers passage, and ask the question, who were they rebelling against? They would, you would say Jehovah. But here the Apostle Paul directly applies it to Christ. Christ was the one that they were tempting. 
Christ was the one that they were rejecting. Psalm 102, verses 25 and 26, Jehovah God laid the foundations of the earth. We're told in our passage later in verses 10 through 12 of of Hebrews chapter 1, that those very things laying the foundations of the earth is applied to Christ. Synonymous. The one who laid the foundation of the earth in the Old Testament is Jehovah. Paul says it's Christ. Christ is Jehovah. He must be of the same substance with the Father. Joel chapter 2, verse 32. Whosoever calls on the name of Jehovah shall be saved, shall be delivered. Romans 10 13 applies this to Christ. Whosoever whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's taken in the context of preaching the gospel. Synonymous. Christ and Jehovah. And then the one that I always remember, it's an easier one to remember for me, the next two, are both taken from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, where the Lord, you remember that, that passage, comfort ye, comfort ye my people, Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sin. And then there's a prophecy concerning John the Baptist. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. In that passage in Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3, Lord is Jehovah. So the prophecy concerning John the Baptist is, prepare ye the way of Jehovah. Christ comes into the world. John the Baptist has a specific ministry to prepare the way of Christ. And that passage is quoted in John chapter 1 verse 23. And it's applied directly to Christ. There's no denying it. You cannot deny it. To deny it is to deny the scriptures. The word of God is quick and powerful. And it's clear that the one that we look to as our savior is of the same substance as the father. And then the last one, Isaiah chapter 6, you'll remember there's a, a vision or, or, or a vision that, that Isaiah has of the Lord high and lifted up. His train fills the temple. And then the, the seraphim, they have six wings. They're covering themselves and they're crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Okay, The first reference in that passage Where Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, it's the word Adonai. The sovereign. That that person that he saw as the sovereign was also referred to by the seraphim as Jehovah. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Turn to John chapter 12. This This is a powerful reference to deal with who Jesus Christ is in his divine nature. John chapter 12. You take the context here in verse 37. But though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. That the saying of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spake, Lord, who hath believed our report? And to whom hath the arm of the Lord been revealed? To whom hath the the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because that Isaiah saith again, He hath blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, that they should not see with their eyes, nor understand with their heart, and be converted, and I should heal them. That reference right there is taken from Isaiah 6. And so John follows it by saying this, These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory... And spake of him. Who did Isaiah see? According to the book of Isaiah. He saw the Adonai and he saw Jehovah. Two titles given to the same person. John tells us that that wasn't just Jehovah that he saw. John says these things spake, said Isaiah when he saw his glory. And spake of him. The clear application is that the one that Isaiah saw was Christ. High and lifted up, train filling the temple. The one who's over all the affairs of men is applied, that's applied in this passage as being the one that we would refer to as Jesus Christ. And so that's the reason why the heresy that teaches that he's not of the same substance was rejected. 
Not because a, a group of men sat around and said it's advantageous for us to believe this over that. They came to the scriptures and the scriptures overwhelmingly show in the Old and in the New Testaments that the one that we call Jesus of Nazareth was unique. There was never anyone like him. Because while men could see him hunger and thirst and weep and bleed and die, as we'll get to in the next couple weeks dealing with what he did, right? Right now we're dealing with who he is. Everyone could see that he was human, that he had bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. Yet this one who appeared to be man, the scripture says he's more than a man. The nature that is behind this person is divine. Now, he also has a human nature, obviously, all those things that I said. And so you're dealing here with something that we can't explain. How is it that God takes to himself human flesh, in all appearances appears like a man, but yet the person acting behind that nature is Jehovah himself? I don't know how, I, I, I don't know how, I don't know how to explain it. But when it comes to understanding God, even the things that I think I know, I never understand perfectly. The Lord has revealed enough to us about who he is that will enable us to see our need of a Savior and to come to Christ for salvation. Even in those areas, we still have minds that are fallen. We still have have hearts that are fallen. One day that will not be. In our redemption, the day of our redemption, everything will be made right. We'll receive new bodies apart from sin. But there's, there's nothing that I understand about God the way it needs to be because I'm fallen. But when it comes to things concerning the, the nature of Christ and his person behind it, we can't even begin to understand how these things transpired. What's, what's, what's needed for us is to see what the scripture says and to be in, in to, to marvel at who the Son of God is. The one that James and John and Peter prayed with appeared to be a man, but he was also Jehovah God. And so simply because we don't understand everything about the person of God and, and, and the nature of Christ doesn't mean we deny the scriptures. The, the, the biblical support is clearly there. So the, the first thing we see from this passage is that he's the son of God. The second thing we see is that he has a position of authority because the passage goes on to say, whom he hath appointed heir of all things. And, and with this we'll close, we'll, we'll consider this, pass, this, this section of the verses and we'll get to the, to the rest next week. But he has a position of authority, not just that he's the son of God, because the passage says, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son. He has a position of authority because it says God has appointed him heir of all things. According to our text, Christ is be, being an heir is a direct result of being so at the command of the father. The father is the one that has given him this place. And so therefore, when we talk about him being an heir, it has to do with a place of prominence or a place of lordship. God has appointed him heir of all things. In Galatians chapter 4 verse 1, we read about the heir. It says, Now I say that the heir, as long as he's a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all. Right? The heir, simply by virtue of him being the heir, he's not in the place where he takes possession of everything, but he's still, he's being groomed for that position. He's made Lord of all. So even, even in the days of, of servants and masters that where the Apostle Paul was, those things were, were around in Paul's day. He takes this idea and says that even though the heir has not arrived at that place of ultimate fulfillment, he's still Lord of all. And so when a child is an heir, the only aspect of being an heir has to do with prominence, a place of prominence, a place of authority 
because of who he is. And so that is, is applied in our passage, whom he hath appointed heir of all things. Jehovah has appointed Christ this place of prominence. A.W. Pink, in his commentary on this passage, says, The word heir suggests two things. It suggests dignity and it suggests dominion with the additional implication of legal title that goes with it. Okay, so the dignity, it's a place of honor, and dominion, it's a place of authority. Okay, and he quotes a couple passages, Genesis chapter 21 dealing with, with heir, and then the passage we just read from Galatians chapter 4. And heir is a successor to his father in all that his father hath. In connection with the father and the son... The supreme sovereignty of the one is nowise infringed upon by the supreme sovereignty of the other. The difference is only in the manner. The Father doeth all by the Son, and the Son doeth all from the Father. The title heir here denotes Christ's proprietorship or his ownership. He is the possessor and the disposer of all things. He was also appointed to this place. The Father appointed Christ the heir. That is, he was appointed to this position along with all the glory and all the honor that comes with it. This appointment took place long before the world was created. This place is an eternal, uh, an eternal relationship that the Father and the Son have together. Again, what am I talking about? All we know is that God is eternal and that there were things that were determined. The scripture refers to them as his eternal decree or things that took place before the foundation of the world. Things that took place back then before the world was even created and therefore before we were even created that was part of this eternal decree. Anything eternal, I can't... We have have a beginning and we have an ending. Everything we do has a beginning and an ending. Times of joy have a beginning. Times of joy have an ending. Times of pain have a beginning. Times of pain have an ending. How can I? I I can think in terms of everlasting because of the fact that the Lord has put eternity in our hearts. So I can imagine something that came into existence continuing forever. The Lord promises that to us, eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, have eternal life. The Lord tells me, I can understand that. I'll never die. Well, I, but the body will die, but my soul will never die. But how do I begin to describe what I mean when I say an eternal decree? A, a decree is something that's given in a place and time. What's an eternal decree? Again, your mind just just shorts out. But we're dealing with God. And, and, And there's certain things concerning the person and the nature of God that the scripture tells us they just exist. Doesn't try to explain it to us. Just tells us this is the way it is. And I believe it. I believe it. Because it's in the scriptures. And so, in this regard, this... Appointment as heir of all things took place in eternity past. Without it, there would be no election. God's people are said to be chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Christ hadn't even come into the world yet. And the fact that I was chosen to be a son of God took place before the world was even laid. The foundations of the world were even laid. Again, I can't explain that. I can only tell you what the scripture says. And so without that purpose of God of pointing Christ, appointing Christ as the heir of all things, there would be no choosing of those people in Christ. Without it, there could, be no, there could be no redemption. It's at the heart of the covenant that God has made to save a people, this exalting Christ to the place of being heir. And so we come to Christmas and we hear about the baby in the manger and all these, these manger scenes and the cute baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. First of all, if you, ever, <laughs> if you ever did any research on what swaddling clothes were, I assure you, Christ did not look anything like the manger scenes that you see. 
Those swaddling clothes were torn pieces of clothing, usually torn because it's trash, it's junk, you wouldn't wear it. And they were torn in bands, strips. And that's what they wrapped dead bodies in, right? Swaddling clothes. Oh, it sounds so nice and so picturesque. Christ was wrapped in dead man's clothes when he was born. Didn't even, wasn't even born in a, in a home. He was laid in a manger, wrapped in dead man's clothes. How is it possible that the one who came into the world in that fashion and went to the cross to suffer for the sins of his people was the one from the eternal decree that was established to be the heir, the place of prominence. It's, a, it's, just, it's something you would not arrive at. It's something you would not arrive at. All you can say is with the apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on the world, received up into glory. But in talking about the the mystery of godliness, Paul starts it by saying, great is the mystery of godliness. God, Jehovah, was manifest in the flesh. We, We couldn't dare say it. We couldn't dare say something like that unless the Bible said it. So all these things, redemption, election, it couldn't happen unless God appointed Christ to this place of authority. The appointment of Christ to the place of being heir, therefore, is the fountainhead. It's the source from which all the benefits of the aforementioned covenant flow to us. There would be no salvation. There would be no adoption. There would be no redemption for the people of God without it. God appointed him to be heir of all things. The greatest manifestation of this truth, however, was seen in the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. What happened after Christ's resurrection and his ascension is the, it's the culmination, it's the fulfillment, it's the end of him being appointed heir. He was appointed heir in eternity past. But the great manifestation of that took place when he rose from the dead and ascended to God's right hand. Matthew chapter 28, before he ascended, the resurrection, by virtue of him being raised from the dead, he says in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, all power is given unto me. He didn't say, I have all power by virtue of himself. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Christ had all power given. The Father gave it to him by virtue of his finished work. The great culmination of him being appointed to this by the Father. And then he rises, he ascends to heaven. And on the day of Pentecost, in preaching his message where he saw thousands converted to Christ, the Apostle Peter says in chapter 2, verse 29 of the book of Acts, men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulchre is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Again, the great fulfillment of him being given this place of air. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he, is, he saith himself, Jehovah said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, quoting Psalm 110 until I make thy foes thy footstool. And then he sums it all up by saying this, Therefore, let all of the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made this same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, 
both Lord and Christ. What, did, what is Peter saying when he says, God hath made this same Jesus? He's saying God has appointed him to this. He didn't even take this unto himself. The Father is pouring out this honor upon Christ. And his work that he accomplished on the earth and the, his ultimate ascension and his work that continues at the right hand is just the, the great culmination of that. It comes back to our passage. God has appointed him heir of all things. What's my responsibility? And we'll close this morning with this. What's my responsibility? When I'm called or asked to come fill the pulpit of any church, my responsibility is to preach the one whom God hath appointed to be the heir of all things. Sometimes preachers make it a little too difficult. We try to get a little too, too nifty. Maybe we try to, to show our eloquence or our, our, mental, our mental education. It's really not that hard of a job. To see what the Lord would do, that requires Holy Ghost anointing, salvation. That, that's the Lord's work. But it's really very simple. The same way Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, that's what I'm called to do today. That's what I'm called to do every time I step behind this pulpit. To, to at some point in that message, to give the very words that we just read that Peter said, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. My job is to preach that Jesus is both Lord and Christ, and he is because of the appointment of the Father. So again, those, those are the two things that we started to consider. Who is Christ? He's the Son of God, but he has this position of authority. Right now he has that position of authority. Where is Christ? He's at God's right hand. And the scripture's clear, he will stay there until he puts all enemies under his feet. That's authority. You may look at the world and say, I don't see it. I see a lot of enemies that, that appear to be growing. I see a lot of corruption that seems to be growing. Is this not proof Christ is not on the throne? One of the great judgments that the Lord brings upon men is he allows them to continue in their sin. Allowing someone to continue in their sin actually accentuates the authority that you have. Remember Psalm 73, Asaph, it's debatable whether Asaph wrote it or not. It's attributed to Asaph, but I have reason. In the Hebrew, the word of and the word for can be used interchangeably. So some say that David wrote it, and it was a psalm for Asaph, because Asaph was a singer. Right? So David wrote it. So regardless, but in Psalm 73, uh, the psalmist, whoever it was that wrote it, had, had a problem. He, he sees God's people suffering. He sees God's people miserable and how difficult it is in this life for God's people. And he looks at the wicked and he sees that they prosper. Everything's going good for the wicked. Everything that they're doing seems to benefit them. They're rich. They have all these goods. And, and you've got God's people that, that live paycheck to paycheck. And, and sometimes they can't even make their ends meet. And, and if you're questioning whether God's an authority, maybe you would say like the, the psalmist saying, these things were too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then understood I their end. The psalmist says, surely thou hast cast them into slippery places. If you understand his argument, the, the promoting and the increase of riches for the wicked is God putting them in slippery places. The very benefit that they think that they're getting in this life, the very advantage that they have, and look at my life, I have need of nothing. That is, an, that is not an indication that God is not in control. It's an indication that God has passed them over because the very prosperity of the wicked is their undoing. So don't get, don't get deceived into thinking that because it appears that the wicked are prospering in the world. Don't get deceived into thinking that somehow Christ is not on the throne. Scripture tells me he's at the right hand of God and he's continuing to put all enemies under his feet. The fact that they are given over to their prosperity, 
that leads them to say we don't we will not have this man to rule over us is not an indication of a lack of authority. It's an indication of total power. He's given them up. Christ is the heir of all things. He's at the right hand of the Father. That's the one we serve today. That's the one we, regardless of, of what my president and your prime minister are doing and, and the legislation that promotes wickedness, the Lord will deal with it. The Lord will deal with it in his time. But he's in authority. No one, no one on this earth has been appointed that place that Christ has been appointed. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth because he's been appointed heir of all things. So again, who is Christ? I trust that as we've been seeing these things, these, these thoughts have been an encouragement. We're going to continue. Again, this is just scratching the surface of what Paul is mentioning here in these verses. Some of the, 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 the greatest statements concerning his work are found in these two verses. They're, they're just loaded verses. So in the, in the will of God over the next several Sunday mornings, we're going to continue on about him being creator and upholding all things by the word of his power. Think about that. He's, he's upholding all things by the word of his power, right? The old Greeks taught that Atlas was holding up the world, right? And you always see him. He's got the world on his back and he's straining and everything. My Savior doesn't even need to hold the world by, on his back. He, he's upholding it by the word. He just speaks the word. And everything is the way it is. It's amazing things that we're going to get into concerning who is Christ. Why is he so special? The Bible tells us why he's so special. I trust the Lord will bless these thoughts to us today for his sake. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, we're thankful for our Savior and our Redeemer. We're thankful for all that He has done for us and who He is. Father, we are thankful, as we'll see in the days to come, that not only is this one Jehovah God, but He's bone of my bone. He is a sympathizing Savior. He is my High Priest, who not only intercedes for me, And not only offered up a sacrifice the way the old priests did, but that that sacrifice was offering up himself. For he understood that only through the shedding of his blood could I know remission of sin. This is my Savior. And so, Father, help us to make much of Christ in the coming days. Take us from this place rejoicing, Lord. Revive us again. Help us, Lord, to to keep good thoughts of Christ in our minds this day, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll end our service by singing hymn number 319.